Greetings and welcome to Take Back Our Schools. I'm Beth Feely here with my co-host Andrew Gutman, and we're two accidental activist parents who woke up and spoke out about issues we saw in our children's schools. And on this podcast, we tackle those issues as well as solutions. You know, we talk a lot about what's happening in K through 12 education, but today we're going to get a glimpse into what happens when those high school graduates land on a college campus. And for that, we welcome to the podcast Professor Jason Hill. Dr. Hill is a professor of philosophy at DePaul University in Chicago, and he specializes in ethics, social and political philosophy, American politics, and moral psychology. He's the author of several books, including his most recent, What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression. And you can follow him on Twitter at Jason D. Hill 6. So welcome, Professor Hill. Hi, Beth and Andrew. Good morning. Thank you. Before we dive into the state of college campuses from your perspective, could we start with a brief history of your story of coming to the United States um, as an immigrant and rising to the level of professor of philosophy at a, in a university? Well, I, I left Jamaica when I was around 20, and I always knew I wanted to come to America to pursue um I didn't know I was going to become a professor. I thought I was going to become a novelist and a screenwriter with a PhD in philosophy and uh, somehow that morphed into me becoming a professor, which was a dream come true when I became a professor and um, started uh, in Atlanta. I moved to Atlanta from Jamaica and, um, you know, had a, a really arduous struggle. I worked up to 45 hours a week to put myself through school and went to school full time and graduated actually in three and a half years and graduated magna cum laude and all that good stuff, a lot of hard work, and went to school full-time, and then um, got a scholarship to do my PhD in philosophy at Purdue, and uh, did my PhD in four years, because I took a lot of time off. I took lots of gap years and worked in banking when I was in America, worked in advertising uh, to put myself through school. And um, my first job was at Southern Illinois uh, in Edwardsville, and then I had a postdoc at Cornell, and uh, then I came to DePaul 23 years ago. What got you interested in philosophy, just out of curiosity? I had been reading a lot of, my father had been plying me with books when I was around 13, 12, or when I was around seven or eight, I've been reading a lot of novels like Dostoevsky and Dickens and and Jane Austen from around the age of seven, eight. And But my father had been plying me with books um, from around the age of, well, philosophy books and literature books and sociology books. And so I've been reading some Bertrand Russell's and Immanuel Kant. And then around the age of, I'd say, 19, I discovered the novels of Ayn Rand, and I read those novels and didn't really like the novels at first. I turned to the nonfiction essay, and I thought, um, I've, I've been trained as a journalist in Jamaica and been working as a full-time journalist um, at the newspaper my grandfather had been an editor of, and his father had been the editor there. And I thought that I would have gotten a PhD in literature, Um but then I quickly realized that philosophy was really my calling after I read those 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 essays by Ayn Rand. So I came to America with a decision to do a PhD in philosophy because combined with my reading of Nietzsche, Rand, and some other philosophers, I thought this really was an exciting, venturesome journey that I wanted to explore. That I've been reading literature from I was seven. I didn't really want to do a PhD anymore in literature. Very good. Okay, so you have spent quite a bit of your uh, student and professional career on college campuses. So how are we doing? We're not doing very well. Uh, you know, when I came to college in 1986, um, and I, or 87, I started college in 87, actually came to America in 
85, but I took some time off. I remember Jesse Jackson, you know, with his chant saying, ho, ho, Western civil's got to go. And I remember saying to God, please give me at least 25 years in the academy where I can really be a professor, really write. And that's exactly how many years I've been a professor now for 27 years. He gave me at least 25 years where um, I could teach my text. We're not in a good place. We're in a, in a, in a state where um, classical texts are being canceled. I mean, the decolonization of the Western canon in the university is accelerating at such an unprecedented rate that to sort of get into the details would commit me to being a statistician of gutter trivia. And I don't think it would really help your listeners, but we are in a bad place in the sense that not we are we are in a state where all fields of knowledge from classics to philosophy to even the stems the stem fields are being revised so we are in a revisionist period in the universities today um and i think that this is not accidental i think that the reason one of the reasons that we're in this sort of revisionist period in philosophy is to usher in a brand new era in which the criteria for determining what counts as knowledge will be very, very, very different. So that's why we have activists and advocacy programs now counting as degreed programs or counting as knowledge because the revisionist schema is to cancel those traditional scholastic models like history, like philosophy, like literature, and to say those are imperialist, those are racist, they're intrinsically racist, even something like logic and reason, which we traditionally have used to adjudicate among disputes, are racist themselves. So if logic and reason and, and rational argumentation are racist, and they are the governing bodies that form the methodology of anthropology, of philosophy, of literature, then we just we can get rid of those and we can sneak something in, which has been going on from the 1960s, which I write about in my book, these fake disciplines like Black studies, like Chicana studies, like LGBTQ plus A plus 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 plus. Um, putting all plus. the conceptual the placemakers plus, there. Huh. And, um, you know, Chicana studies, all the advocacy studies um, to usher in, and we can talk about this, what, what this new era looks like, to usher in a new era. So we're in a revisionist period in our academy. Um, and all the individual stories, Beth and Andrew, that we hear of, like, Abolition of whiteness, um, teaching speciesism as a as a form of oppression. There's a new program now that's spreading on college campuses, and it's part of the Black Lives Matter agenda that teaching oppression against plants um, is a form of oppression which has been inherited from um, from white people. Um, all these examples are just the minutia, are just concrete of a larger agenda which is at work, which is the university is working to, and we can talk about this, to usher in a new kind of era. Can you, I want to follow up on that from the perspective of professor, can you talk about where the pressure comes from? You know, are you being told you have to replace certain books? You can't teach certain things. Is, is it a peer pressure? Is it, you can't get published if you don't do certain things? I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it's it's the climate, first of all. So there's a climate of, of suspicion of inherent racism that inheres in all of these texts, in all of these bodies of knowledge. 
And so no one wants to be an outlier. No one wants to get accused of being a racist. So there's not necessarily mandatory, although in my university, I remember getting an email two years ago that says, have you decolonized your syllabi? Meaning, have you sort of either rid it of European Western white men, or have you sort of problematized it by, and what they mean by this is, have you um, put on your syllabus critics or critiques of the Western tradition? So it's 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 more of a sort of culture. And who is that? that sorry, has, who is that email coming from? It was okay. coming from like the dean's office or the okay. the provost's office. It was coming from one of the administrative bodies in the university. I don't remember exactly which. So there's a general culture, general atmosphere, a, a far left Marxist inflected culture that dominates the campuses and very few professors now want to appear as if they're racist. So they're the orthodoxy that I've adhered to um, is very, very old fashioned. Um, so most professors, like most people, are herd creatures, they're followers. Uh, so they're there isn't, as far as I know, a sort of governing body that's telling you that you have to do it. What they do is, and that they do this in my case, you have to turn your syllabi to a governing body who will inspect your, syllab- your syllabi very carefully. And then in certain cases, make certain recommendations about how you can improve your syllabi. So they have these syllabi workshops that you are encouraged to attend. Sounds like thought police, mm-hmm. actually. <laughs> It's thought police that you're encouraged to attend. You're strongly encouraged to attend. And then sometimes in certain universities, if you don't attend these syllabi on your merit evaluation, you're asked if you attended the workshop syllabi. And if you attended the workshop syllabi course, uh, then you get an increase in your salary or that counts as part of service. So there are various ways that you are sort of coerced indirectly and very circuitously um, into into following these new mandates, these new I, they function like religious injunctions, really. Right. Right. Um, so it's kind of there's already a herd mentality, and then there is a mechanism to incentivize that behavior. So it sounds like it's pretty difficult to break free of that. You have to be very staunch in your views to kind of resist those that type of coercion. Um, are you fairly lonely on campus, or are there other professors that that feel the same way you do? I don't know of any other professor who feels the same way I do. If I think there are two that I know of, and they'd rather remain anonymous. I think yeah. they're they're not as outspoken as I am. They're certainly not, you know, um, they're not as outspoken, and they're, they're they're not as consistent as I am in enforcing the old-fashioned rules of teaching the text primarily, um, discounting the fact of whether or not a thinker might have been racist, looking at the body of work and the knowledge that we're the legatees of, and counting that as, as 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 being foundational and as being important and the, the personal opinions of the thinker um, uh, are, are actually quite irrelevant and sort of pointing out the fact that we ourselves inhabit many, many prejudices and many, many biases. And would any of us want the body of our work uh, to be discounted because of personal prejudices that we might have that need not necessarily infect? And I use the word infect the body of our thought. So I don't know of too many professors who are who are out there. I think most capitulate. And, you know, we've got something called transing, which we can talk about, transing the curricular, querying the curricular, which is a very, very new um, 
in the last two years has emerged querying the curricula, which is something brand new, which is part of the trans transgenderism or trans ideology. Yeah, that I mean, it, I, I'd be very surprised if college campuses were not hotbeds of that of that activist movement. Um, how is this? How is this affecting the students? I mean, do they come to campus wanting this, or are they in your class and kind of just you know taking in whatever the professor is teaching after it's gone through this thought police review? I mean, what is? How does? Tell us about the students. Well, it's very difficult to say because most of them are apathetic, um, exhausted. I think about 50% of them are suffering from some sort of mental um, disorder or some sort of mental breakdown or, or, or are suffering mentally and it's been psychiatrically diagnosed. I just saw a recent article in the newspaper that said, um, several newspapers that said enrollment in most college campuses um, is down by over 60%, but enrollment or applications are up by 55% at Hillsdale College. So there is a large, a broad swath of students who are sick and tired of this woke nonsense. But I think this is also driven by demands of the students. That is, the students themselves have become activists, have become sort of um, accustomed to virtue signaling, that the culture itself is largely very, very woke, and that the students are just a mere reflection of this. Is it making them happy? happy are they getting fulfillment from it i don't think so uh because it's 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 there's it's 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 a very finite very short circuited they they expect to see immediate results and the immediate results are not forthcoming which leave them very very frustrated one student told me last week she just wishes she wishes all the old people in power in any institution would just die why can't we all just she meant my generation i told her i'm not a boomer but she said it doesn't matter why can't you all just die so that we can just take over and um, and rule and govern. And I said, you know, I repeat what Jordan Peterson said. I said, well, 12 years ago, most of you were like eight or nine. You present poorly. You lack articulacy. You lack a command of the language. You really can't think properly. What qualifies you to think that you can even govern um, um, the floor at Wal- the, be a floor manager at Walmart, let alone run a country? And I said it lovingly in a very sort of affectionate way, but I meant the point to get across very seriously. So I don't think the students are happy at all. I think they're lost, they're listless, they're looking for a new religion, which they've found in the woke culture on campus. But it's a, it's a shallow religion because it's it's founded in the present and the fleeting and the ephemeral. And they, they sort of grab onto the latest fad, whether it's trans or whether it's you now Sam Harris that has gone you know, um, non-binary and wore dress to the Grammy. That's what they want to talk about in class. And um, everything is so temporary and ephemeral that as soon as they sort of sink their teeth into something that really gives them vitality, it's become yesterday's news. So I think they're, I find them very, very unhappy, very, very sad. Is this a recent phenomenon? I mean, have you seen this change over your career as a professor? Or is this something, I mean, you know, gradually, Abruptly, is it very recent? This kind of um, since I think this 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 has been going on for a long, long time. Right? The war against the Western canon has emerged since I would place it since the nineteen sixties. Like the overt rebellion against the canon started with the, the victim, what I call the victim studies or the revolutionary studies, but it has really, really taken a kind of heightened, keen form, I think, since 
2016 or 2000, okay. the last five years, uh, we've seen a really radical revolution that is taking place on college campuses. So the movements themselves are not new. Like the abolition of the family was something I heard when I was in graduate school, abolish the family. Yeah, I'd like you to talk about that book that's apparently ripping across campuses because you had mentioned that to me and I was floored, absolutely yes. floored. Yeah, it's all the rage among PhD students, you know, abolition, that abolish the family and replace it with nothing. Um, I think the woman's name is, I think her first name is Sophie Lewis. I did a review of the book. So the, the concept of abolishing the family and defunding the police and, and, and abolishing uh, incarceration, these were all ideological tropes that I heard when I was in graduate school, but they were fringe. Okay. There were, these were people on the fringes. These were people that if this were the subject of a thesis would be laughed out of the department, but these ideas were fomenting. And now Andrew and Beth, they have become mainstream ideas. Like if you wanted to write a doctoral dissertation on Foucault and the abolishment of the, of the prison system, uh, that's your way to get a, a grad, a job in graduate school. <clears throat> so something in our culture has shifted really, really radically where all the fringe movements and the slogans of um, yesterday have become uh, normal uh, features of today's vocabulary. I mean, they're just normalized and mainstream today. Are these institutions savable, you think, at this point? No, I don't think they are. And I think that's why you have like the the the... The, the institution Florida by what's it called? The new college, I think. The new college, the college right. of Florida. New yep. college. You have the University of Austin um, in Texas, which is really heavily funded and is opening up very, very slowly. You've got Ralston College. Um, you've got Hill, uh, Hillsdale, which has been a longstanding. I think you're going to see the emergence of new academies and um, these institutions are slowly going to either have to reform in some way, which they, they won't. Um, enrollments are going to go down and they're going to crumble. I think you're going to see a kind of renaissance among people because parents, these enrollments are going down because parents, the non-woke parents are horrified at spending seventy to $80,000 to hear a child come home who's majoring in gender studies or LGBT studies tell their parents that, you know, America is a bigoted, intrinsically bigoted, systemically racist country. Incidentally, uh, it is a systemically racist country. It's just that it's systemically racist against white people now. And that's part of the agenda of what the university is doing. Our universities have become the environment through the diversity, equity, inclusion programs by not sort of encouraging an expiration date on affirmative action programs. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it has become this place that is fostering all the initiatives, all the, the policies that has made it systemically racist against whites. I mean, I say this as someone who works in the academy. If you're a white person and you're going into philosophy, you're not going to get a job. If you're a trans person, if you're a black person, if you're a woman, uh, particularly a black woman, um, you're guaranteed a job. You're just guaranteed a job. Do you think... Good. I was going to say, do you, the Supreme Court obviously is going to rule this year on uh, on affirmative action. I mean, the assumption is they're going to strike it down. Um, I think we've seen universities already start to plan for that happening. Do you think that that'll have an impact? No, no. I think the diverse equity inclusion uh, initiatives are so 
ha- have a coercive stranglehold on universities and they are so the machinery uh, is so heavily embedded in these institutions that uh, it won't make a difference at all. It just it's part of the the repertory of 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 the culture itself that it's not going to make a difference. I can't see it making a difference. So maybe in the university setting, um, what about in corporate America, which it has also taken root in many of these companies, but you know, with a possible recession looming, like, do you think that there might be a little bit of a rollback, at least in that venue? Um, Same answer. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I'd be far-fetched. Bummer. I mean, look, the no, culture is so, our culture is so suffused with these diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racist policies that I think corporations are deathly afraid of losing what, what they perceive to be a sizable work members of the workforce that constitute this kind of mentality i think they're wrong i think they should they should go for the non-woke um individuals but parsing out those individuals also have legal implications because you can't discriminate on the basis you ought not to one should say discriminate on the basis of ideology a person's beliefs and what you can ask a person in an interview about their political beliefs becomes very, very testy. So how do you vet and keep out of your office, you know, those individuals who hold those very, very ultra left-wing Marxist, woke, nefarious beliefs? You you have to be, one has to be very careful. We'll be back with more Take Back Our Schools right after this. Hey, James Lalex here for the Rick Shea Flagship Podcast. It's going to be March for an awful long time. How to keep yourself interested, stimulated, and intellectually aware during that month? Well, the Ricochet Podcast, the Flagship Podcast, is, of course, where you can find a variety of guests and conversation that you can't find anyplace else because it's on Ricochet, and Ricochet is no place like anyplace else. That goes for March, for April, for June, July, for August. Well, I wanted to ask about your about your book. I mean, you address some of these issues with affirmative action and DEI and race um, in your most recent book, What Do White Americans Owe Black People, which is a provocative title, which actually gets lumped in with some of the Ibram Kendi type books. <laughs> I think people, um, it's a good title. So what what do white Americans owe black people? What's What would be your answer? Well, I would say that uh, respect for their inalienable rights um, respect for their dignity, but that the debt, or the, I hate to use the word debt, but the right, the wrong has been righted. And I argue, of course, that since the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and the 1972 Employment Act, that, and coupled with the affirmative action programs and Black Studies programs, which was a form of cultural reparations, that America has been in the process of righting the wrongs, which it inflicted against Blacks with the great birth defect that America was born with, chattel slavery, Jim Crowism, and just keeping Blacks outside the domain of the ethical when we when we did really have white supremacy in this country and when we did have systemic racism, that is, there were policies that systemically excluded Blacks from the public sphere, from the private sphere, from the various institutions in which one would matriculate and, and, and develop one's agency 
there there was a part that ugly part of American history which is not mm-hmm. the case anymore when it comes to blacks. Uh, there are no laws that are punitive of blacks because of their race anymore. Um, that the debt has been paid, and I, you know, I, I really go through quite thoroughly. I think in the book to show how this is the case, starting with the 1964 Civil Rights Act, that was, I argue, a form of moral eugenics um, to change the sensibilities of white people to turn them into non-racists. Um, the, the, all the reasons I give, I think, are complicated, but but I don't think that whites or blacks anything anymore, any form of discrimination that occurs, they belong in courts of law. They're, they're even something like redlining, which I think still occurs today, unfortunately, but it is not an issue for reparations, it is an issue that belongs in a court of law, um, as do any sort of violation against Blacks that violate the 1964 Civil Rights Act that are discriminatory. Um, or any protected class of individuals who are covered under laws, under anti-discrimination laws. We're seeing now that California, I mean, seems to be trying to push uh, reparations and with big numbers, I mean, enormous numbers, California not even being, having been a slave state. I mean, do you think this is going to happen? I mean, do you you see these kind of things? I mean, with the momentum in the last few years over social justice and over these issues, I mean, do you see that happening? Yes. I mean, Disney just did a big, big cartoon special. It's it's making all the rage among yeah. K through 12. Did you see it? On about Twitter, rep- yes. yes. Yeah. On Twitter, the yeah. The Proud Family. The uh, Proud Family, yeah. Mm-hmm. About we deserve reparations. I think that, you know, the left knows how to really fight. The problem with the conservatives and people on the right is that they think that the battle battle is to be fought only in the political realm. And the, the left is really genius at fighting this on the cultural level. I think reparations is going to be the next big thing that's along with trans rights, um, which has already taken over the country, uh, I think reparations will be the next big issue that people are not taking seriously today, but is going to be the next big issue, cultural issue, that is going to dominate political, cultural conversations for the next two years. I, I really do think so. So, okay. So then how would it work for you, a Jamaican immigrant who came to America, who was not a descendant of slaves in this country, would you deserve reparations? Most certainly not. But I think that that's where it's going to get very, very complicated because the criteria for vetting those who are allegedly deserving of reparations is going to get very ugly. And Mm -hmm. one is going to say, one could say, well, you know, even immigrants are deserving of reparations because Mm -hmm. they've they've benefited from white privilege is going to be the argument. Once they landed here, they were implanted, even though although they came here voluntary, I can just hear this argument. That is, they still still were subjected to white privilege, I should say, and were harmed in their efforts um, to advance their lives. There were obstructions placed in their their path by white privilege. So they themselves are deserving of reparations because when you're in place in a systemically racist society, then the extent to which you can flourish and and pin your aspirational identity on the American dream is harmed by white people, right? This is why the abolition of white people and the abolitionist movement to cancel whiteness is so interesting to me because it's really predicated on the idea that like James Wilderson and um, this other guy that I write about in my book, um, Warren is his last name, Calvin Warren, 
say that you know the existence of white people of black people the continued flourishing of white people is really predicated on the annihilation of whiteness which reads the annihilation of the white race um so i can see immigrants making that argument some immigrants making that argument in some ways that this has become such a mainstream topic of conversation it's it's i mean i think it's just indicative that this is winning i mean and, and bigly, you know, it's you just reparations, it's amazing. reparations. Yeah. The fact that we're talking about it seriously on, you know, on a podcast, I'm not 10 years ago. I don't think that would have, well, it's kind of how, it's kind of how quickly I don't think gay anyone knew about it Pardon? happened. It's kind of how quickly gay marriage. I mean, it was, it was a, a very you know, little support and all of a sudden, boom, mm-hmm. it had overwhelming support. Yeah. <laughs> Gradually then suddenly. Right. <laughs> I think this is what happens when a people who are like gays and, and, and blacks have been free for a long time. Shelby Steele and I actually had a conversation about this at your house, Beth. And, and I wrote, an, I, it's part of my book, where people who are free from oppression mm-hmm. and don't know what to do with that freedom go through a sort of existential angst. Like I think the gay rights movement has, a, gays have a lot of freedom now in America. And they also have too much money. And they don't know what to do with it. So they're just giving it some of that power and some of that money to the trans movement. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a more nefarious um, ideology behind trans, behind the trans movement. But mm-hmm. I think also there's an existential crisis going on here. You know, it's like when your identity is predicated on oppression for centuries or decades and you're now suddenly free, you've got to create some kind of drama. You've got to create a new a new scenario in which you continue your 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 identity as a sort of religious icon you know you yeah. have the imprimatur of innocence stamped on you all these years because you've been a victim now when you're no longer a victim what do you do you have to create some mess you have to create some new drama called reparations because you're now still systemically oppressed yeah. it's part of i think it's part of human nature for for, for people or groups of people who've been oppressed genuinely oppressed for a long time and now suddenly are free and are just ordinary like everybody else and want to maintain their extraordinary status of being special, being innocent, because if you're a victim, you're presumably innocent for life. Mm-hmm. But oh, there's also something about that these organizations, I mean, these not-for-profits that exist for a certain goal, maybe it's civil rights in the 60s, maybe it's gay rights and gay marriage, all of a sudden they achieve what their goals are and then but they still have a lot of money and they still have a lot of support. Now they need to do something else. This is well, a conversation they need to maintain relevance, right? So you have yeah. to create a crisis. I mean, these, these organizations exist to organize, you know, to, to build the organization in some sense, not, you know, not necessarily to, to achieve certain tasks. I had this conversation on Twitter with Wilford Riley about how maybe not-for-profits have to, should be, should have to state their goals. And if they meet their goals, or maybe after a specific amount of time, uh, they should be extinguished that or at least lose their non-for-profit. Mm-hmm. So we don't have these sort of drastically moving goalposts. We went from gay rights and gay marriage to this crazy trans stuff. Um, you know, I think similar in this, I think we've talked to Bob Woodson about that in a previous episode, similar in the civil rights era where, you know, they did 64 uh, um, Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act. Uh, and now it's become something much more different, mm-hmm. like reparations. Well, like things start as a movement, become a business and then end up a racket. And so, yeah, that progression has happened. Um, so you launched a podcast somewhat recently, not about six months ago or so. How is that going? And and quite, quite well. It's it's hard to build a podcast to build listenership. I think I have 40,000 active listeners or subscribers. Um, so it's going well. And we talk a lot about I do a monologue and one week and then I have interviewers, um, guests on the show. 
Usually it's like Jason Hill thing. University. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's called the Jason Hill Show. So that's good. I'm building it slowly. I was supposed to have Paul Gosar, um, the congressman from Arizona, on. He's going to be on next week and um, kind of interview more conservative and also some on the left um, politicians, usually congressmen and women uh, on the show to talk about solutions and legislation that could be passed to sort of protect this country because i think ultimately what what all the the conceptual common denominator that all these groups have whether they're you know black lives matter or or the trans movement or the lgbt movement or the tei movement is really um i think ultimately it's to foster a class a race war and a class war it's in order to bring about a, a really a socialist or a socialist regime in america um if you look at i think if you look at the trans movement what 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 is the goal there to have both both sexes or both groups neutered so that neither they can't reproduce so they can't no one can be the beneficiary of their property um so who's going to be the beneficiary of the property well the state so they're they're really interesting ways of looking at these movements and what the outcome and what the 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 the, the common the commonalities that exist among all of these groups um they're 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 they're, they're quite interesting um if you have a if you have a if you have a class war if you abolish whiteness and you create a sort of artificial division between the races by stating that whites really are still systemically racist and you have a class war um then that's just easier for you to sort of achieve your goals as a revolutionary communist or socialist because um, you pitted people against each other that normally wouldn't have been pitted against each other in this sort of gargantuan way. Uh, you mentioned, last question, I think I'm gonna let you go, but you mentioned earlier that conservatives are not very good at the culture war. The left is very, very good at it. And I think you said, you know, we're not likely going to win this only legislatively or politically. I mean, a- any thoughts on how the right gets better on these issues or or what we need to do to to push back and and ultimately win a culture war? Well, I think that they have to sort of realize that, you know, they, well, the right has to sort of function as a unit in ways that it has not functioned. I mean, the, the people on the right are largely individualists who do their own thing. They're not collectivists by nature. And I think they have to start funding, like getting together voluntarily, funding people in Hollywood who are on the right, you know, funding artists, funding, we need as many comedians in the, in the, in the, in the comic rooms, in the comedic rooms as we do in the, in the classrooms and uh, comedians on the right. We need, we need screenwriters, we need actors, we need movies. Um, And to realize that those books that conservatives refuse to review that are written by other conservatives, this is a big problem on conservative writers too. To, to review those books and give them a hearing. Um, conservatives do a lousy job of promoting other conservatives, I think, and to get their act together in that way. Um, there are also certain policies that could just be, 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 I think Ron DeSantis is what Ron DeSantis is doing. He's a model politician and sort of fighting the propaganda that, you know, the 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 free speech is protected and should be protected, but propaganda and racial hatred has no have no business in our public schools at all. And um, you know, we 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 could have he could serve as a role model 
for other governors and other city administrators to follow suit, that we're just not going to have propaganda and hatred be a part of the school curricula. Um, But more than that, lastly, Andrew and Beth, I think is the idea among a lot of conservatives that I've spoken to, that this is just a fad, that this is a phase or a phase that is temporary and that will pass. And I think that's the danger. It's, 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 it's what people in the Weimar Republic thought about the rise of Hitlerism, that this is the land of Goethe. This is the land of, of, of great literature and high, high art and music. This could never happen. That this somehow can't happen in America, that these are just sort of little, you know, these culprits are just inimical to the idea of America. And, there's an awakening that I think conservatives have just not really had about how dangerous and and deep rooted and sinister these movements have been in this country since actually its inception. Yeah. Um, and that really is the biggest problem that I think we face among conservatives, this, this radical awakening that this is something very real, that there's something satanic and evil coupled with something very politically sinister at root in our culture to destroy America. And once I think conservatives really wake up and find out that this is not going away, that it has to be fought, then I think creative solutions will really come to mind. But well said, because this is the conversation that Beth and I have almost every episode about how we get parents to wake up to exactly that, to what is going on in their kids' schools, because this is a revolution. And our kids are being indoctrinated in that, uh, you know, Marxist and woke ideology. And they're, you know, unknowingly being uh, groomed for that revolution. So Jason, thank you so much. This was, I think, a, a fascinating conversation. We covered a lot and we really appreciate you coming, coming on Take Back Our Schools. Thank you so much. Good conversation. Oh, it was great. And, you know, I met him se- several years ago. Uh, do you remember his essay in Commentary Magazine, An Open Letter to Ta-Nehisi Coates? Did you by chance no, read that? I don't oh, it remember. Great. Is it good? It was. This was kind of early in my parent activism journey. And he wrote that. And it literally prompted me to look him up and reach out to him. Uh, and we had coffee. And then that essay became a book called We Have Overcome, mm-hmm. which is really his story of his um, immigrant story to America. And that was captured in the essay. It's captured in the book. And it's so inspiring. And I think that also is a bit of the engine behind his real concern of the country, because I think he he appreciates I think some of the the rights and and principles that quite frankly a lot of us take for granted. And so Well, it's a typical immigrant. I mean, I mean of of the people mm-hmm. that I know, I I think we've talked about this before, clearly yeah. immigrants in general, but especially yeah. immigrants that came from former Soviet Union and communist China and Eastern Europe where they saw mm-hmm. this movie play out and uh never thought this could happen here and I I mean Jason said kind of the same thing. We're seeing this play out. Yeah. But you know, that you you came here, I mean, my my family came, you know, came here a few generations ago um, for the, you know, for the same reasons that most immigrants came for these opportunities. Economic Mine came freedom. like 11 generations ago. So I should wow. be one of those people that don't that don't appreciate anything. But that's that's but I do. What's um, 11 generations? That, uh, years? This is, yeah, this is like 15, 1600s, actually. I'm pretty sure. Sh- wow. You're not yeah, one of those Mayflower people, are you? Uh, no, I could be okay. a daughter of the American revolution, apparently, oh, if I okay. cared to pursue that. And, uh, no, I did. I have my, one of my aunts did a great genealogy. She's very, very smart. And 
spent a lot of time in retirement looking up. So it's fun. It, it's kind of interesting. But any, yeah. at any rate, I, I I subscribe to the Jason Hill and the immigrant philosophy. I, I cherish the values that we have in our country. And it pains me that these kids are coming to campus today have not knowing anything about them. And it sounds like- But not worse true, than not knowing. Seeing. I mean, worse yeah, they're, than not they're, knowing. Right. They're, 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 they're hostile they're, towards, they're hostile. towards it. Yeah. Right. And that's what they're so, getting. I mean, this is the scary thing politically is that you know, it, it, this was until a few years ago, mostly the indoctrination you're getting in universities. Yeah. Now we're getting this as we talk about every episode almost. Now we're doing this to our kids in, in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And interesting, he, he mentioned that that inflection point in what 2016. Um, you know, many of us noticed yeah. a real uptick in the mid 2010s. And so probably something worth unpacking. Um, to well, we've, I, I don't why, know if we've talked about this. Social media obviously kicked in. At that time, mm-hmm. uh, you know, political you Trump, upheaval, Trump and- right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, there are a number of factors, uh, but a great conversation. So he's, yeah. Um, yeah. So encourage we encourage people to check him out again on Twitter at Jason D Hill Six, and you could even audit a class at DePaul if you live in the Chicago area. I'm sure he'd love it. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I, I'm assuming you okay. could. Uh, okay. yeah. <laughs> I take his class. I love philosophy. <laughs> yeah, no, he's All a great, right. he has a good job. He really cares about his students. So he does do the both sides and he's yeah. um, anyway. So well, those are the good professors that we, that we're losing and need more of. So on that note, yeah. Thank you for listening to take back our schools. Uh, we hope you like what you heard. Please follow us, like us, share us, subscribe to us. And as always, uh, we'll be back soon. I'm Andrew Gutman on behalf of my co-host Beth Feely, and we will see you soon on take back our schools. Ricochet. Join the conversation.